This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture or if you're into sports memorabilia, please visit firstroll.ca. Use promo code THEPODCAST20. This is a company based out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. So to all you American listeners, everything you see there is in Canadian funds. So it's a little bit cheaper to you. And they also ship worldwide. So don't worry to the international listeners. Like I said, they whet the appetite for all your nerd needs. They have wrestling figures. They have comic books. They have signed memorabilia from sports used equipment. Anything you literally need or want. And they update daily. So please visit them at firstroll.ca. And if you're into nerd culture probably you're into video games and if so most likely books as well so please visit bossfightbooks.com today for great books on classic video games you'll find titles like final fantasy 5 shovel knight and nba jam and if you want to support me directly please visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device that you're listening to me on it's embedded right there click on the link takes you right to the merchandise store i got everything you need or want from hoodies to t-shirts to travel mugs to covid masks like i said anything you need or want is strictly there but if you don't want to support anything monetarily, it's totally understandable. The most easiest thing you could do, the most freest thing you could do, it takes you two seconds, rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week's guest is a writer and a filmmaker. He is the man behind 2020's hit film Console Wars, Blake J. Harris. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I should clarify that I'm half of the man. Uh, oh, okay. My buddy Jonah Tulis, but uh, yeah, uh, it is a project I've been working on for many years. I wrote the book beforehand, so uh, thanks so much for having me on. And also, actually, one other quick note for your listeners: I just sure. want to say a congrats to you or appreciation to okay. you that you know when we were scheduling these things, you were so accommodating of my schedule, which has ebbs and flows. And you know, not all people reaching out are always so friendly about friendly about that. And right. you know, you, I, you reached out again when I had asked you to, and Perfect. So, thank, and, and give you a reminder. So, thanks so much. Just so your listeners know that you're you're great with the communications with guests beforehand. Oh, thank you so much. And you see, people, it's not that I pay my guests. It's just a little secret called being nice nowadays. That's all it takes. <laughs> it's so simple, but people can't grasp it. <laughs> yeah. 
That's hilarious. So, okay, obviously we're going to talk about console wars, but let's rewind a bit. Let's start where you first started your love for video games. What was it? What clicked? Why did you get into video games? Uh, it's a good question. Um, so, so I'm 38 years. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think 30. Yeah, 38 years old. Um, and I, I, the first console I ever got was an Nintendo Entertainment System, the 8-bit NES. Nice. Uh, I can't say that it was like something I was clamoring for, just because I, I, I guess it was. It was something that my brother and I really wanted for Hanukkah or Christmas. But we didn't really know what it was because we like didn't really understand what video games were. I guess we had some frame of reference from arcades, sure. but very minimal. And I just met, I, I remember getting the eight bit NES with the uh, Super Mario slash Duck Hunt for Christmas and being so excited because I knew I got this thing, but I like didn't. I just I I just knew it was the thing that everyone wanted, um, which is I guess a long winded way of saying we finally set it up, <laughs> and I was blown away. This thing that you could play as many times as you want, not have to put in quarters over and over. And, and that my brother, it was like also one of the first things that my brother and I were better at than my father. Yeah. You know, clearly, uh, he's True. better at us at that ball. He's six foot three and everything else. But <laughs> it was like, oh, we could do this. And, and, what, and also one of the few things that my brother and I got along doing, I think that that's a big part of why I fell in love with video games uh-huh. was that I was a pretty cool older brother. Um, but it was nice to have a second player for a lot of these games. And, and it was like something that my brother and I could do. So we got an NES that was awesome. Nice. And then we desperately wanted a Super Nintendo. Okay. So we uh, put together whatever, like the childhood equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation is <laughs> for our parents. And we're like, oh, we need to get a Super Nintendo. Yep. It'll count for five birthdays and two Christmases and 700. <laughs> we'll do extra chores and we'll put in money. And my parents said no, which was unusual because they were always very, uh, they were very nice and supportive and at least always tried to like help us figure out a way to make something stuff happen, whether it was help us save money or whatever. Sure. Uh, but but really that it, that that sticks with me because the reason that my parents didn't want us to get a Super Nintendo was because it wasn't backwardly compatible. That was uh, in with how a lot of parents felt at the time. Like somehow Nintendo was trying to rip them off. Right. Uh, you know, it was a different era. It was, it was you know, <laughs> there hadn't been that many console cycles. But uh, but as a result, my parents got my brother and I a Sega Genesis. Mm. So. That was uh, and that was probably the time the time of my life that I was most into video games as a kid, uh, particularly the sports games. I was always very into sports. Yeah, never great at sports, but so playing NHL '94, NBA Jam, or Joe Montana football was how I like to spend my after school time and my weekends. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, because me as well. I well, I started off with the ColecoVision first, and then I graduated to the NES. But I was like you; I didn't get the Super Nintendo first. I got Genesis first, and then later on, I got the SNES. So what do you like? Because I was going to ask this during while our talk during console wars, but now that we're talking about this, what do you prefer more, the Genesis or the SNES? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I guess uh, at, the, at that time in my life, the Genesis was definitely the better console. Right. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into it more just with like, the identity marketing stuff, um, but because of the sports games. But if I were like trapped on a desert island and I had to have one of the two consoles for the rest of my life, I would probably prefer the Super Nintendo, which is a hard thing to say because you know the big slant of the the book and the film both focus more on Sega because I think that that's the more interesting story. I definitely feel more of a connection to that company. Right. But uh, you know, the, the Nintendo. One thing you could say about Nintendo is that they always put out quality products, maybe not products you would like. But, yeah. you know, if I were trapped in a desert island, I would probably want the, the quality products of Super Nintendo. 
But now let's see if you agree with me on this. I think the whole thing was obviously I'd rather have both if I if I had a choice. But here's the thing though. I think Genesis had better fighting games and sports games where Super Nintendo had better platformers and adventure and RPGs. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. So I guess I would say that if I were to be playing, if it was just me playing the console, I was to share with my wife or my brother or a friend and we were, you know, sharing an apartment or something, I would probably want the Genesis because it's so much better for two players for fighting games or for sports games. Yeah. No. Okay. So what are some of your classics then? I got to know. Uh, NHL, NHL 94 is probably my all-time favorite. Uh, I, oh, well. As much as I've spent in my life now uh, writing about or playing video games, I'm really shitty at them. I'm not very good, <laughs> but I am very good at NHL 94. So okay. that's like, or at least I last one. Um, uh, other favorites, uh, what, this is a game I'm terrible at, but the original Mortal Kombat or okay. second or third one. Never was that good at that. Um, NBA Jam, but uh, I mean that was one of the most fun ones. But the way yeah, you know that skill plays such a small part of that game because of how True. they sort of uh, keep the scores close. Yeah. Um, and the Joe Montana's football games, I really love. Yeah, I know. You, which was sport games that you liked. Yeah, of course. Joe Montana, to me, at the time, was better than Madden for some reason. I don't know what it was. It just felt more crisp. It was better. But obviously, everyone knows that Madden took over and then the rest is history. But I don't know. There's just something about that Sega Genesis football games. Like They were like almost good, all of them. Like I think Troy Aikman came out with one at the time as well. And then there was like the QB Quarterback Club or something like that. I can't remember the exact naming. But there's so many different football games, but they were all fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and even when I was, you know, I interviewed uh, over 200 people for the book, and then, you know, we interviewed many people for the documentary and pre-interviewed them, but, like, a lot of them were from Electronic Arts, because EA played such a big role in Sega's success at the time, and also yeah. had an interesting relationship with Nintendo, and when I, would, when I sort of told them how I got into the project, and, you know, what I used to play as a kid, or what I was playing, they would always, if I said, like, NHL 94, they'd always be like, oh, it was the Sega Genesis version, though, right? That was of the course. better one, right? Like, like that. So even, like, <laughs> the creators of many of the sports games preferred the version that was on the Sega Genesis. So do you think that's the game you've logged the most hours in, in your whole life? Um, that's another good question. I, uh, it's the game I wish that, I guess all things being equal, I would like the most hours in, but probably like I'm looking at my Nintendo switch now <laughs> and, and then between virtual consoles on the Wii or, you oh, know, true. Nintendo games or whatever, I've probably played the most uh, Legend of Zelda or something like uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 or something like that. Like, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have OCD and I have uh, some repetitive behavior. And so I, I play Zelda quite often just as like a, as like a, a comforting coping mechanism or just that. Just to, I don't know. Uh, so probably Zelda, Legend of Zelda is what I play the most. No, that's a, that's a good answer for sure. Zelda is one of those classics. What about current stuff? What, what are you into currently? Is there anything that you can't get your hands off of? Or do you even have time to play games right now? Um, I probably... Uh, I mean, I make time to play Zelda over and over. <laughs> um, and, and tech football still. Uh, I, I, I don't play... I, I, I the only like the newer games I play that I would play on um, the modern consoles are sports games. So... Uh, like Madden, I still play. I'm excited that NCAA basketball is going back. So mm-hmm. Not here yet. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, I think that just a part of my 
gaming journey. Uh, I, I never really got into first-person shooters early on, mm. and therefore was really bad at them. <laughs> and so that probably made me a lot less interested in playing many of the games just because I was so terrible at them. So I, I, don't, I, I don't really play a lot these days. Uh, but I guess I, I put I put an hour or two every day of playing, but it's all stuff that's you know eight bit or sixteen bit. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so back back to the doc. You said it. You, that this was mostly through the eyes of Sega Genesis, and and I guess you answered the question that I'm about to ask. Anyways, it's because you grew up with it, and it was your first love, correct? No. No. I don't know. I mean, maybe subconsciously at some level, but I thought it was just the more interesting story. I mm. thought that okay. it was. An underdog story from the, uh, from their POV, they were David taking on Goliath, um, and then also just I think in, I think one of the things you see in the film and in the book, and you know, just talking to anyone from Sega during that time period right. was they were so nimble and they had so much autonomy to switch things on the fly mm. to be flexible and adaptive, and just from like a business standpoint, that's also much more interesting than a company like Nintendo, which again puts out great products, but they're very slow. And methodical, meticulous, and that's a little bit less exciting of a of a story in, in, in you know sure. short periods of time. But I guess I, I when, uh, obviously I wrote the book first, right? But both the book and the documentary, I initially, if you had asked me when I first started working on them, I would have guessed that it would have been like fifty fifty Sega Nintendo. Mm-hmm. At one point, I even thought that the book would be like one chapter on Sega, the next chapter Nintendo. Um, so I ended up choosing not to go in that direction and maybe maybe there's like some psychological analysis of it being because i was a kid and i was on team sega and that's i'm sure that played some factor but i like to think at least consciously my thinking was that it was because they were more uh it was just a more interesting company to focus on during this period of time now how much research did you put into this hours wise because there's so many like little things that i had no idea about and the people you brought in to be in the, both the book and in the movie, like, for example, right off the top of my head, like, Tom Kalinske. I never knew this man was the behind the Flintstones vitamins, but I did know he was behind He-Man. So that little Flintstones vitamin tidbit, and there's so many others I'm sure we'll touch on. But like I said, how many hours did go into this, or years even? Yeah, uh, I definitely measure it in years. Um, I wrote, uh, the book came out in 2014, and I spent three years on it. Um, three, you know, probably the first two were just research, research and interviews alone, and then and maybe some like outlining. Right. Um, but last year was writing, and I was still, you know, in touch with these people and interviewing them and doing research. Um, and you know, those were uh, at first. I'm sure it was a little bit of a. It wasn't like a full time sort of job, but then right. by the end, it was you know, a forty or sixty or eighty hour a week sort of thing. Um, and, and it really did start for me with Tom Kalinske, um, because I, everything I do, whether it's about gaming, whether it's you know, like my second book about Oculus, mm. um, for me, the, the entry point is always the characters, the interview subjects. And, and when I first spoke with Tom Kalinske, you know, back then when I, I Googled him and there was a Wikipedia page and it was like three sentences and it was like, that was like pretty impressive, but I did, sure. I thought maybe he was just going to be like an empty suit, like, or, or like, <laughs> you know, sort of just like a, uh, a guy who didn't seem that different from many other businessmen, right. obviously with some success, but 
uh, I was just blown away the first time I spoke to him. We ended up speaking for two hours. Oh, shit. We ended up spending the first hour of the conversation not even talking about Sega. He was <laughs> just talking about the background, like you mentioned, helping develop the Flintstones kids' Drupal Vitamins um, while he was at J. Walker Thompson, the advertising firm out of college, mm-hmm. um, that transition to Mattel, uh, talking to me about the Barbie fashion uh, the Barbie doll line and it helped him heavily resurrected and really continue to put faith in it. Um, and now obviously that has been, that was probably a wise decision. It's uh, <laughs> still, still a brand that's has a lot of appeal. Um, and then just all of his adventures with He-Man and then uh, with Matchbox cars. And I was just blown away. So that was, uh, that was my way. But I, but I, I, I research is a big, is, is a huge part of everything, which I suppose is obvious of everybody doing nonfiction storytelling. But I really, um, in the nonfiction space, I, 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 I tend to really only like stories that are told from the perspective of the subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in documentaries, I don't really like when the people speaking are historians or, um, <laughs> you know, people who didn't live through it. And that, that's what Jonah, my co-director, Jonah and I always talk about what okay. we do. We wanted to feel like a campfire story amongst the people who were there. Now, certainly Makes there's sense. cases where someone passed away or where someone didn't have uh, a vantage point into something and you have to figure out a way to tell the story or, or you cannot tell it. But, um, but I always think it's kind of weird when people have asked me to be in documentaries. Cause I'm like, yeah, I've spent eight <laughs> years researching it, but like right. you should talk to the people. So, uh, so I try to put them in touch with the people. And so that was a big thing for me. Um, you know, there was a lot of going through old news, old newspapers and old magazines and trying to pull little facts, but the most uh, useful and the most fascinating part for me was just talking to people, uh, you know, logging my, I don't know, I feel like my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Maybe it wasn't all from console wars uh, in terms of interviews, but those mm-hmm. were the first interviews I ever did. And just hearing everyone tell the story in their own words and things that maybe even on Wikipedia or on paper would seem not that interesting become right. very interesting because you learn the whys and the hows of yeah. these things that you know as facts. Yeah, no kidding. And the the thing I loved, uh, uh, like even these type of docs with video games and the nostalgia factor attached, I was a kid. So, and back then there was no internet. So you didn't know what happened behind the scenes where it's nowadays, you know what everything happens at every single studio, what goes on into making a game, right? So to go back and to realize that Nintendo was actually the bad guys in all this was mind blowing because it's like Nintendo, what are you talking? They're like the Walt Disney of video games. How can they do anything <laughs> wrong, right? Oh, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, that, that you felt that way watching it because that's how I felt researching it and then also I hope that by the end of the film you felt the same way that I did researching it where after talking to Nintendo people I thought alright they're not bad guys they just have a different perspective they're right. kind of dick um, or at least their business practices were very strict maybe you know, I would argue too strict and the US government would certainly say too strict but yeah I like I mean back then it's really like I was talking to my wife the other day when I was playing Legend of Zelda and I <laughs> Showing her um, where to find the eighth level in in you know the first go through of the game and sure. like how you have to burn the bush and I and she was like how how did you know that and I was like right. yeah there was like like I, I guess you can either burned every bush in the game or you know Nintendo Power like but basically or or a friend had to tell you but True. but there wasn't like a you know Google where where's level eight yeah um, it was really a different time um, and I think the internet is the biggest change from there, but Sega also 
had a role in sort of creating more of a standardized industry in just in terms of I'm thinking like like even when games came out, they didn't have release dates or they had release-ish dates. Yeah. Um, but Sega wanted the industry to be like films where people, you know, were looking forward to games coming out. It started with Sonic Tuesday. Um, and then you had Mortal Monday, which was not a Sega thing, but I mean, it came out on Sega, but that was an acclaim event. Um, but I think that that's also, you know, I, I, I both the documentary and the book, I, it, it, it was very important to me that the viewer and the reader remained in that time period the whole time or mm -hmm. as much as possible. Like I didn't, like, you know, the book is told from the eyes and ears and hearts and minds of these people. And I don't say, you know, you're like, like compared to today with the Xbox, like I don't want right. to take you out at the moment. Um, but, you, but at the same time, you want to tell a story that, that is relevant to today. And I think that's a big, aside from just the universal aspects of the underdog story or mm -hmm. business strategies or console war still exists today and there's lessons to be learned from there. Right. Um, just the way that Sega changed the industry and helped it mature and evolve. Um, some, some of that intentionally, some of it unintentionally is, a, is I think a really important part of Sega's legacy and why that story still is important and resonates with people. No, of course. Uh, the, the biggest dick move I think that Nintendo did was when they blackmailed Walmart. But then the smartest thing Sega did was open a store right beside them. Like, to me, like, this is the stuff that... Imagine this happening in today's day and age. I, I, I think I'm in the minority in that I would, I would like that kind of stuff. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people nowadays, uh, for by the way, very understandable reasons saying that they hate console wars not not the book of the movie but just the concept of companies fighting and the, most of the exclusivities sure. um but i i'm a big believer in that what we saw with sega nintendo and those kinds of feuds are the best version of capitalism the the side where in the end the real winner is us the gamer or True. us the consumer because we were getting cheaper products um, you know more more games uh better technologies better peripheral devices um and I also like a good old-fashioned rivalry. Uh, you know, like it was fun growing up arguing about Sega Nintendo. It was fun growing up, and even now, arguing about the Yankees or Red Sox um, or uh, other rivalries like that. But, uh, you know, that's all. <laughs> well, maybe when it's in the form of, like, Flame Wars Online or um, certainly when it becomes uncordial, I don't like or support that. But I, I like... I also think there was like an honesty to it because look, the people at Sega respected Nintendo and many of them liked their games, but they also wanted to kick the shit out of them. Right. And so, um, you know, when you see public statements from executives at game companies uh, praising the other game companies, uh, um, I don't, I don't believe they're being sincere. But I would also like to see some of the. Don't uh, ideas, uh, including the one that you're describing, where Sega went down to Bentonville, Arkansas, the flagship Walmart store, and found a creative way to get their product into Walmart uh, headquarters. Right. Okay, so another thing that I love that Sega did was, again, we mentioned it right off the top with Tom Kalinske, is bringing in people from other businesses that were successful, like bringing in the creator of the Reebok pump, Steve Race. Like, like think of a video game... Uh, company back then trying to think of stuff like this this is way out of the box and i think this is why sega was so successful in my opinion well one i think you're totally right 
two, I think it's like I think it does beg the question about who were the who were the bad guys because uh, the guy that you're talking about, Steve Race, who one of my favorite people in the world, he wasn't the creator of the Reebok Pump, the actual shoe, but he was the head of the marketing account um, oh, okay. and did and, and you know helped launch the Reebok Pump um, sneakers. And, and his whole, you know, the, he tells this anecdote about the first ad for the Reebok Pump and creating the Reebok Pump. And, and you know, it's very compelling and funny, and I love it. Right. But his, essentially the takeaway is that the, the pump did nothing, and it just sold people something that's, that sounded cool. Exactly. And there were aspects <laughs> of Sega, especially during the later years of the 16-bit cycle, where that's true. And as someone who, at that point in the story, is rooting for Sega, I, I love it, but... It's also, you know, like glass processing is not is is sort of like um, it's not it's not tricking people, but it's um, assigning value and playing semantic games to make it seem like you have certain advantages. And so I can understand from the Nintendo perspective why that's bullshit. Like, <laughs> you know, like they're like talking to employees over there. They're like, oh, we're our, you know, like we don't that, that that's like 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 Nintendo would look at things as, as if Sega was all about su- style and no substance. Right. And I think that's a pretty uh, exaggerated way of looking at it because Sega had a lot of good games and a lot of sure. um, other important contributions. But but there is just this uh, philosophical battle going on. So I like that, you know, like like the best stories, um, as much as this seems like a David and Goliath story, um, it was both, car- both sides thought that they were the hero from their point of view. Um and, and to your earlier point, yeah, Tom did bring in people from other industries. Tom brought in a lot of outsiders. Tom brought in a lot of uh, women to play. Yeah, that uh, too. Exactly. In the company. You know, in the documentary, there's only uh, one female executive from Sega, Ellen Beth Van Buskirk or yeah. Evie Beebe. Um, but in real life and then in the book, you get to meet a lot more like Diana Dare, who later changed her name or later got married and is now Diane Fornasier or Madeline Canepa, who's now Madeline Schroeder. And she played a big role in the creation of Sonic. And she was already actually at the company, but Tom, Tom, one of his great skills. Um, and the reason why he has this magic touch at, <laughs> you know, creating flowstone vitamins or He-Man or all that <laughs> is he's so great at putting the team together. Um, you know, I, I remember I once asked him, I, I don't think it's in the film, but I asked him like, in a football analogy, like what, mm. what role do you see for yourself? Do you view yourself as sort of like a quarterback? And he said, no, I really see myself more as the coach. Mm. Like I'm putting other people in positions to try and succeed and helping to get them motivated and come up right. with a plan. And sometimes that plan changes. And he also wants to give them the autonomy to be able to change that plan. Um, but he, he's so good at finding diamonds in the rough and, and getting them all working together in one direction. Now, how hard was it getting everyone in your book and uh, for the movie? And was there anyone left out that you were like, shit, I wish I could have got this one more person in? Yeah, good question. Um, it was, at, at the time when I first started working in the book, I had uh, I had a day job trading commodities uh, in the financial industry. Okay. And I had, I had I was essentially a, a struggling screenwriter for like 10 years. So all of which is to say that I didn't have any uh, like credentials. Sure. So it was very hard at first to get people to speak with me. Right. And understandably, like I, <laughs> I, would, I would be skeptical of speaking with someone like me. Um, <laughs> but because it took me three years, I said, to research and write, right. over the course of those three years, I developed relationships or I you know, was able to 
get enough, you know, get enough recommendations or at least share some material. Um, and, and so for the book, I was able to speak with everyone that I wanted to speak with, um, with one exception being Minora Arakawa, who was the president of Nintendo of America, uh, the son-in-law of, uh, Mr. Yamauchi, or, yeah, Mr. Yamauchi, um, who ran Nintendo Corporate Limited, which I guess you can call like Nintendo Japan or the, mm. or the main Nintendo entity. Sure. Um, and then for the documentary too, um, actually, uh, that's not true. There, there were people for the documentary from the the, uh, the Japanese side of the business, whether it's Sega or whether Nintendo, mm-hmm. that we would have liked to include in the film, and people who had been helpful to me for the book, and okay. they were willing to be off the uh, yeah off the record or on background, um, but we weren't able to get them on camera for the documentary. Uh, and I, I, I mean, in general, the story that we told. Uh, in the book form and documentary form is very much uh, an American version of the battle. Um, We touch on some of the global aspects, but, but um, some of that was a consequence of not being able to get the perspective of some of those other people. Cause like I said, I like having first person uh, players who were actually there talk about these things as opposed to, you know, people who've only researched it or, or speaking uh, second or third hand. Now, did you ever find out what the obsession was with these execs staying at the Comfort Inn? Oh, well, well, yeah. So I guess uh, we should tell your listeners who haven't seen the film or read the book that one of the, uh, basically the number two executive at Sega, uh, Shinobu Toyota, who is a a Japanese man that loved America and has been living part-time in America for the past 35 years, um, when he first joined Sega, uh, you know, at that time, Sega was just a, was a nothing, you know, essentially a startup. And like many startups, it was seen destined to fail or unlikely to succeed or be around for a while. Right. So instead of buying an apartment there or a home in San Francisco where Sega was located, he stayed at the Comfort Inn, hmm. um, which I guess is initial reasoning and why other people at the company stayed there. Um, like you see in the film, right. is because it was uh, conveniently located in terms of the airport and on the way oh, to wow. say office. Uh, I guess it was also affordable. It seemed like it was nice. They had sort of like suites. Um, but then once there was, you know, then the fact that they were all, that many of them were there made it more attractive to others. Um, but whereas Tom Kalinske uh, ended up moving his wife and his children up to San Francisco and getting a, a home there as did Paul Rio, another executive who had been staying in the Comfort Inn. Uh, Shinobu Toyota um, maintained his, you know, the same room at the Comfort right. Inn Suites that he still has there today. So it's that's been 30 crazy. years of, in the exact same room. And that's where we did the interview for him. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. I guess we never really, like, made that point, which maybe, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that was... And then it was, they loved him there when we oh, did the interview. And all right. the Comfort and staff were, oh, Mr. Toyota, you're so lucky you get to talk to him. He's a celebrity over there, as he should be. He's a, he's a really fantastic guy. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, you didn't really touch, per se, on certain video games throughout the, the movie. I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if you delve more into the like each certain video game that made such the system even more popular. But one you did touch on was Mortal Kombat and how that was so much better on the Genesis. Well, I shouldn't say better, but it was... The true deal because it had the blood versus, I guess, the gray right. mist, right? So, uh, was that 
part of the way you wanted to present it, like it was just solely just about consoles. I didn't really want to touch on the games, but I needed Mortal Kombat because it was such an integral part of it. Yeah. Um, so that's generally true. Um, it's much more on, it's, you know, I, the, the, the film is much less even about the hardware and the software than it is just about the corporate strategizing and scheming and, and, and battle. Um, and but, but but we do touch on a certain game. obviously there's a lot of games shown throughout and yeah of course offhand, but you know Mortal Kombat is one that we really focus on um, because it uh, because it played such a pivotal role in that battle and uh, because it also personified so much of uh, so much so many other uh, subject matters you know like the fact that Sega differentiated themselves from Nintendo mm-hmm. by essentially offering publishers and developers uh, freedom to do whatever kind of content they want, or actually that's not true, not whatever, but more adult-themed content. Right. Um, as Nintendo had very strict guidelines about Nintendo-style games that had to be of a certain quality, but also uh, have certain content or not include certain types of content. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to your point, you know, Mortal Kombat which was a very, which was the most successful arcade game at the time, uh, was being ported to these two consoles, and Sega uh, had their version be as, as as gory and as bloody as the version in the arcade, or at least you could unlock that through entering the blood code. Right. Uh, whereas Nintendo chose to censor the game and chose to have uh, the fatalities changed or removed, yep. to, and chose to have the red, you know, blood, which is red in real life, uh, changed to like sort of a greenish grayish sweat. Um, and, and as a result of that decision, uh, Sega ended up outselling Nintendo like five to one. And that was sort of the moment of time where they really pulled away from Nintendo. Um, you know, and really got a strong push. And then that was also an important game, uh, narratively to, to talk about because, it very directly led to the, the Senate subcommittee hearings here in the United States in 1993. Right. 1993. Um, and so, you know, it, it, the book is the book is 550 pages, and it easily could have been twice that much. There's so much material from this time period. There's so much that you know, as you're telling the story, you want to dive into. But I try to always, you know, keep it as a as a as a swiftly moving story. Um, and then the documentary that challenges even harder where Jonah and I had to figure out how to tell the story in 90 minutes. Right. And so, you know, you don't really, uh, at least in our thinking it, that makes it, uh, you know, you don't really get the chance to, to dive into that many different story beats and, um, you don't really, and, and each of those story beats should, should have something different to say. So even like a similar example, um, or one that we talk about between him and I is, you know, uh, Sega Saturn being um, a, a lack of success for Sega and also the 32X right. and there were some other things too um, and we tried to initially tell those as story beats but it, it started to feel repetitive because it was sort of the same sort of problem between Sega of America and Sega of Japan sure. and so we tried to come up with uh, you know an easier way um, or uh, a more impactful way to tell the one story we selected um, at the cost of not being as comprehensive and just trying to find other ways to fit that in. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my, the, I, that's a really long-winded way of me saying that <laughs> my favorite thing that 
I'm so proud of the documentary and I love it. But the, the thing I like least about it is, is that it's only 90 minutes. Like there's so there's so many good stories and so many other interesting characters that you know you just don't have the time to get into and you have to weigh um, like bringing them in versus uh, telling a, an economical story and one that that we always wanted to appeal to gamers and non-gamers alike. Like I wanted to make sure it was the kind of movie that my parents could watch mm-hmm. and they're not gamers themselves and still right. find, still follow along, still find interesting. Sure. Um, and then also people like you and I who grew up with it or who play video games. So speaking of Mortal Kombat, are you hyped for the movie since the trailer dropped a, a few days ago now or weeks? Yeah, I actually am. <laughs> had you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said I, I had a passing interest in it. Right. But I thought the trailer was really awesome. So I'm, I'm very excited, yeah. Okay, see, because I don't watch trailers because I love going into a movie fresh, so I haven't seen it. I've heard, obviously, that it's great, it looks good and whatever, so even though now my, my perception of the movie is going to be very high, but still, are, are, are you a fan of the original Mortal Kombat or are you one of those that finds it, ah, it's too kiddish, it was, like, you know what I mean? Because I love the, the original. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I didn't see the original in theaters, so maybe that changed my perspective. Uh, okay. You know, I remember my buddy Josh Benedict and I did a pay-per-view, and it was like a big deal back then to get parents' permission yep. to spend like the dollars or the seven dollars to get the movie. Um, and, and I wasn't, it was, I, I, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was terrible. It wasn't what I was looking for. Um, I think that it was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was like very dark, not dark in tone, but like visually, like yes. it was like, like a lot of it was like nighttime and dark exactly. and, um, I don't know that, that it, I guess I, I, I mentioned that too, because I, I, as much, even though I liked Mortal Kombat, the game more than street fighter, yeah. I actually really liked the street fighter movie, which I saw in theaters. So really? maybe that was part of it, uh, but I really enjoyed, um, the, the um, the Jean Claude Van Damme movie. I think that um, I mean neither of them are uh, I would call like masterpieces, frankly speaking. But um, but I am uh, uh, I'm, I am very into story, uh, the craft of story. Yeah. That's that's my job. But also like I like things that feel that are told in a narrative way. I like when okay. information is organized and feels forward moving. Right. And at least I felt like Street Fighter, like there was like you know, the goal and clear stakes. Uh, and there was like okay. a narrative beat the team trying to come together and not really getting along, which I don't know, maybe you could say all that for Mortal Kombat, but I think that's probably a big part of it too. Um, both of them are cheesy. <laughs> I would, I would be happy to watch both of them right now if either of them are on, but, <laughs> and, and, you know, given the fact that I didn't have any particular love for the Mortal Kombat movie, I wasn't expecting the, the trailer to do much for me, sure. but, but it really did. It like, I think because it really played up the tournament aspect. Uh, I won't spoil the trailer or spoil the movie, but like, right. but I, I have a, a fellow screenwriter friend, Brian Nathanson, who has a theory, or, or who just makes the point that he believes every movie that has a tournament in it is a good movie. Okay, um, and he's like, I think he's pretty much right about that. Um, you know, we're talking about blood sport or Karate uh, Kid too. At Karate Kid or Dodgeball, like any of these. Oh, that's right, Dodge. I didn't even think of that you know, too. Yes, like montage, and then you get like you know you, you sort true. of know what kinds of things are going to happen, but just how is it? Oh, how are they going to do like the all is lost moment? How it, you know? So I, I think he's right on to something there. And the trailer did feel exciting, like oh, all these disparate characters, right? 
come together for this special tournament. So what do you want to definitely see in this movie? Where you're like, if they don't put this in, then it's going to, like, tank. Oh, I, I don't think like that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I even When I'm a fan of things, uh, I, I I don't come into the stories or into the games feeling like I need a certain thing. Cause I guess because I've been on the other side. And as a storyteller, I makes sense. be given the trust and not have, like, predetermined, like, oh, if I don't include this catchphrase or if I don't include this, you know, this character. Right. Um, sometimes it's just not organic to how the things are developing. So, uh I mean, I think it'll be really cool when you hear "Get over here." Oh, okay, um, like the sound effects. But if that if if that's not in the movie for some reason, I I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. See, as, as just strictly a person who ingests it and views it on my end, uh, I like like the Mortal Kombat to me is awesome because of the gore, obviously, and all that. And going back to your point of the Street Fighter, I'm the opposite where. I didn't really like Street Fighter, and maybe it's because of your point, like you said, I watched Mortal Kombat in the theaters where I didn't watch Street Fighter in the theaters, so maybe that does have something to do with it, right? But I don't know, I'm really looking forward to this because, yeah, and now, even going back to what you said, it's true, anything with a tournament is a great friggin' movie, I never thought of it that way, like, what the hell, now you just, you literally blew my mind on that one. I'll credit to Brian Nathanson, he was, uh, yeah, no, I, I, like, I think, I also have, I think that a lot of people don't realize how much they like montages and like, like tournaments are built for montages. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's something to that. And I think also it probably it kind of occurs to me as we're talking, like I think the street fighter movie didn't have much fighting in it. I mean, it certainly didn't have many of the characters fighting. Each I think other. that's why I didn't like it. Yeah. Did. And I right. think that, um, that makes sense more interested in like, the story side of things. So even yeah, if people see. are fighting, it's like, Oh, Here's the backstory. Here's why I don't like each other. Um, less that I, I like that part more than the actual action of the fighting. Um, so that's maybe something more that you liked in Mortal Kombat. That, of course, that I like Street Fighter. That now that I think about it, I think Street Fighter was definitely lacking in that regard. And then the other thing I love about video game adaptation into movies is it, okay, it doesn't have to be obviously true to story completely, but the core of it has got to be like. I don't mind having like a side character that's not part of it being introduced or so forth and so on. But to have like, the, like for example, Resident Evil, where they just went right off the rails. All the thing that had in common was zombies and that's it. And the Umbrella Corporation, I guess, right? Whereas Mortal Kombat was like true to it. Like it had all the main characters and everything. And that's all I really want to see in the remake is it still be true to form of what the original people who created it wanted it to be, right? Yeah, well, I think that's true. I think like to me, a lot of that comes across in tone. Like, like I feel like you can get a sense, like, like there's like a, you know, like I guess this is maybe very abstract or cheesy or wrong, but like I feel like there's like a soul to a story, and so even if, even if sometimes a, a, an adaptation doesn't have all the characters or like I said, there's not like a catchphrase, like it, it, it captures like the energy of the game, it captures that soul, and I felt like the trailer for Mortal Kombat did that, um, and and. Um, but, uh, but I want to caution you and maybe other listeners who have seen the trailer would caution you that like, you know, it does seem like the main protagonist of the film is not a character that we know. So that I know. Be, yeah. be aware. I and, know. Uh, you end up getting what you want. I know. That's what, that's what already threw me off. Cause they, when they put up the, the trailer, they put up all the, the characters and the, the artwork and all that. And I'm like, who's this guy? Like, I'm not a true Mortal Kombat. Like, I'm a fan, but I'm not one of those guys that knows all the lore. So I'm like, maybe this is some guy who got introduced when I fell off for a bit or whatever. And then I'm looking, I'm like, oh, no, it's a new character. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. So, yeah, but that's like, that's like kind of, 
like that's kind of what I was saying earlier about how I don't want to, like, I don't feel like I go into a, a, a consuming content with certain expectations. Because if you would ask me, like, oh, would you want to see a version of Mortal Kombat where it's told through the eyes of a new character? I'd say, like, oh, probably not. But when it's at least in the trailer form, it actually seemed pretty good. Like I, I wouldn't have realized that I could that, that would be appealing to me. So I, I, you know, I commend them on taking the risk. We'll see if they executed it as well in the trail as well in the movie as they did in the trailer. But that, yeah. Well, again, me not watching the trailer. Hopefully, this new character is something where they made it where you're like that's from the player's perspective. So this is your avatar going yeah. in to Mortal Kombat, that, right? Thinking behind it, yeah. Okay, so if it's in right. that case, that would be cool. Okay, so another thing that came out of Console Wars was uh, more tidbits. Like, I totally forgot about how Sega and Sony almost merged and would have become this power. Like, now imagine how different the video game industry would have been if that happened. Oh, I've spent eight years imagining that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's really fascinating because it's also easy to... So both companies, you know, basically very publicly and explicitly Nintendo could have had... chose not to have a partnership with Sony back in 1991. Crazy. And then behind the scenes in 1992 and 93, when Sega was working with Sony on games for uh, Sega CD and working with Sony Imagesoft, the, pub- the developing company, uh, the publisher mm-hmm. at Sony, like, there was talk of a partnership. And so you basically could have had some version of the Nintendo PlayStation or the Sega PlayStation. And at first glance, that seems like, oh, well, then that, that company would be the dominant one years forward. And I certainly think it would definitely would have changed the trajectory of, the, of console gaming, but it's also possible that after, like I can still also see them after a few years, Sony choosing to go on their own and breaking up with Sega or something sure. like that. Um, but that was a big, that was like, uh, you know, early on for me, cause I had previously been focused more on screenwriting and, you know, fictional, just, you know, story, you know, things I was making up, right. um, but telling a true life story and wanting to, uh, you know, from being factually correct, I just felt like, wow, it's really is stranger than fiction. That like the two companies that were dueling ended up basically uh, burning Sony, and you know they had they both had a chance to partner with Sony, then they were defeated by the company that they burned, and like that was nicely poetic. Um, and I and, and it was really cool of Sony that they didn't that they didn't get take getting knocked down um, permanently and actually fought for what they wanted to do. Yeah, no kidding. So, did you ever think you were going to make a movie out of the book? Was that always the intention, or were you just like, I just want to do this book, and then the movie came after? Uh, much more like the former. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, I uh, to like put you back in my headspace at the time, I was 27 or 28 years old. I was a failing screenwriter. That's right. Um, I hadn't written a book. I hadn't written articles. My dream had always been to write like a, a great American novel. Um, but like so, you know, one probably the first way that I thought about the story was something like the Social Network, uh, you know, like a dramatized based on true story sort of things, but with the actual characters and actual companies. Sure. Um, and and that's that's still a project that we're doing. As originally it was going to be a film, and now it's going to be a TV adaptation. Um, uh, but but you know, uh, and then pretty early on into my writing the book and my doing interviews, uh, my friend and you know creative partner back then and still now Jonah um to list told me uh, suggested that we do a documentary um which hadn't occurred to me and I remember thinking immediately that even if the documentary turned out to just be 90 minutes of say Nintendo commercials 
like that would be pretty cool. So, right. you know, even without a story, even without like these interesting tidbits, like like people would just be in, like, not really that we'd actually have ninety minutes of commercials, but like that's a pretty good, uh, you know, worst case scenario that you're just gonna be immersed in in that um, you know media from back in the day. And now, was there anything new added to the movie that wasn't in the book? I I, I I wish that there were, and maybe there is, but I don't think that there is, just because of the amount of time that, that we got to spend for the film. Um, like, you know, what you, like, I don't know what it would be in the 90-minute version of Tom's story that wasn't in the 550-page version of the book. Right. Um, but I guess, like, I mean, there's, there's definitely things that you probably miss in the book or that you don't really realize, like that Shinobu Toyota actually lived in the Comfort Inn, right. the executives <laughs> there, the curb just could pass by you. Um, and then I just think that um, as, as, as much as I believe in my abilities as a writer and, and take pride in my work, like there's, there's still something about it being said in the people's own words that, that you can't capture and that makes you know, watching the documentary and hearing Tom Kolinsky talk about these things feel different than, than even, you know, an, a, an accurate factual account in a book. Right. Um, so that was a big part of why it was really important to us to, to, to get the documentary out there because um, I, I wanted people to see it in, the, in these own, yeah, in own words. Now, what about the one thing you wish you could have added if you had just another 10 minutes? Ten, like 10 minutes of screen time? Yeah. Um, I really wanted to, uh, I really wanted to explore more about the, uh, involvement of Michael Jackson and Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and Sonic and Knuckles. Oh shit, okay. And, and, and basically, just like I find it very fascinating conceptually that like every year Sega put out a Sonic game, which was right. their, you know, mascot character in the flagship title. Yeah, yeah. But that also, and, and each time it was like, financially successful but i do think it also created like a fatigue of of the company whereas nintendo uh put out a mario game and puts out like a you know a flagship core mario game like every like three to five years right. um and so i think that it was interesting i just think that that was very interesting from the for a lot of reasons one is how much of a role michael jackson is going to play in the marketing of right. Sonic three um i think also a lot of people don't know or realize like that 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 knuckles was like style uh, was designed to look like michael jackson oh wow uh, yeah and then of, uh, then uh if I, I haven't said maybe what's obvious is that michael jackson uh, was, uh dealt with some claims of child abuse right or, uh, maybe it's like so abuse at the time and that's why he was not part of the marketing plan okay so gotcha. that, that's how plans change right um and then i also thought that um, you know, all the things are in the book, but like, but I still just think having, like, we had a, a, a an executive, Diane Fornasier, tell, tell the story mm-hmm. and just hearing about how um, the reason that, uh, as, as maybe some Sega, as Sega Genesis fans know, like, Sonic 3 was kind of, it was actually split into two games. It was Sonic 3 and then Sonic and Knuckles, which was an add on um, on top of the That's Sonic right. 3 cartridge, yeah. Yeah. which was really cool and marketed is really cool, but the main reason that they did that was because they had to hit the deadline for Sonic 3 to coincide with the McDonald's Happy Meal release of Sonic. Oh, so, okay. And so I just thought, again, like, I see this as not a good guy, <laughs> bad guy fight between Sega and Nintendo, but much right. more of a company with different philosophies. And there's no way in hell Nintendo would ever compromise their game development to worry about Happy Meal. 
they would say, fuck McDonald's. And then McDonald's would rightfully be upset because they're right. like, oh, we had it years ago. But Nintendo always, you know, <laughs> puts game development first and Sega didn't. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think one of my favorite parts about the story is that, you know, just from researching it and, and then writing it and, and making the film is that I used to think of marketing as like a dirty word. I used to think of it as like people trying to trick you into buying things or, or as Jeff could be um, the marketing guy or the guy who ran the firm that worked on Sega's initial Sega Scream, Sega Scream campaign. <laughs> that's like, he says like, you know, when, when you're at a party and you tell people that you're a filmmaker, they think of great films. When you tell people you're writing, they think of great books. But when, they right. tell, when you tell them you're an advertiser, they think of the shittiest commercial. So there's like a very, uh, at least back then. And I think now to a large degree, there's a very negative opinion of advertising. And I guess I came to realize that marketing was much more than advertising and that advertising is actually can be really cool that it really is a way of distributing your message and sharing your values and trying to expand your mission and making people feel a certain way when they think about you and when they play your or you know consume your content and 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 as a you know I grew up with this and as a kid you're always looking for an identity and you're looking for those things that um, help you explore more of yourself or help you find more of yourself and and I do think that Sega, um, that like the Sega marketing played a key role in me. I'm sure that, just, you know, an uncharitable version of that would be say like I was like, you know, duped by Sega or that I right. bought into it. But I also felt like it it made me think. I felt more confident. Right. Um, yeah. it helped me find like-minded friends. Yeah. Um, and so you realize, yeah. and this is pretty obvious, but there is a there's a tribalism to console wars amongst the, the gamers, amongst yeah. the people that are playing that are making these purchasing decisions. Um, and tribalism has come to take on such a negative connotation today, and mostly for good reason. Like yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, but there, but but finding a tribe is also really important, especially to a kid uh, in your development. And, right. and marketing played a big part of that. Um, yeah. No, that's pretty cool. Okay, so is there any plans for a sequel? Maybe Sony versus Microsoft, or even a prequel in television versus Atari. Um, uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be evasive or there's nothing like secret in the works, but, okay. um, but like, like I, I would, I would love to do something more in that space. I love the video game space so much so that my second book was 25 years later about Oculus and VR and many of the similar concepts of, you know, exclusivity and hardware versus software right. and, um, stuff like that. Um, but as I said at the top, like for me, definitely for me and Jonah with the film, like it was always about character. It was about like talking to Tom Kalinske is what sucked me into the story more so right. than, you know, any specific, like than Mortal Kombat. Um, and so uh, to do, uh, you know, a sequel or a prequel or something else in the game space, it would be about finding that interesting story and that interesting group of people. Um, and and we Jonah and I did actually, unrelated to console, where film... Um, a lot of footage with uh, with with Ralph Bayer, who created the well, he actually invented video games um, technically, and his creation led to the Magnavox Odyssey. Mm. Um, and so, if you're going to think of like an Atari versus Magnavox thing from back in the day, oh, there you go. Um, we have all this footage and all these interviews with him before he passed away. Um, that we would like to do something with at some point. Um, so yeah, but I oh, I also would like to say that like. Uh, <laughs> You know, when even even when we went out to book publishers with my 
book proposal. So, you know, you write like, like uh, in my case, it was like 80 pages of like, here's what the book's going to be. Here's some sample chapters. Here's why I think the book will be successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when that went out to book publishers, even though I had no, uh, you know, previous credits, previous books, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg were involved and Scott Rudin was involved. Um, and Seth and Evan were going to write the forward to the book. So it was like a very impressive package of which I was the least impressive part, but you had Sega, you had Nintendo, you had Seth Rogen and 22 of the 25 book publishers that read that proposal passed on the book because they said video game books don't sell. Um, so I am very happy that <laughs> work has been successful because at least it will make someone else doing a, uh, you know, a, a prequel or a sequel or something else in that world. I think it makes it much more likely. Um, and, and if any of your listeners are working on something like that and, and, Want whatever expertise I have to offer in the publishing world, which is minimal, but like I, I, I always, want, I always want there to be more books in the game space, and I'm, I'm actually glad that either one of your sponsors or just a company that you feel strongly about is Boss Fight Books because I love what they do. Right. Um, I love how every book is so different, and yep. sometimes it's really personal, and sometimes it's so detached. And, awesome. Um, like some of the books I like more than others, but I love that I love that they're doing something that 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 everyone probably said wouldn't work when they first started exactly right no kidding well you ready for the worst story of the week blake yeah i like weird stories let's hear what you got okay so we touched on mortal Kombat. so this goes a little bit into the gory realm of things now have you ever played uh the walking dead by telltale um yeah that's like uh i mean it's not it's like it's like an RPG where you make decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like the point and click and QTE yeah, yeah. cutscenes yeah, and all that. Okay. My buddy, buddy Dan Camp. Shout out to Dan Camp. He showed it. Yeah, we, I played it. Okay, so just keep that in the back of your mind when I'm telling the story, all right? So to put it into perspective, there was a 42-year-old man and he was staying at his uncle's house. So one day, someone from that house was calling the police. Now, when the police picked up or 911 or whoever it was, all of a sudden, the person hung up. So... They were preoccupied because this is somewhere in Oklahoma, a small town. So they're like, oh, we know everybody. So I'm assuming they knew who these people were. So they're like, okay, let's drive to the house just in case, right? So the officers went to the house to investigate. When they got there, they knocked on the door, but no one came to the door. And then all of a sudden, as the cops were walking away, this is strictly out of a movie. I can't believe this. They heard cries of help coming from the inside of the house. So and when, when, did this, when did this happen? This happened, I think, a few years ago. But okay. not, not to ruin the story, it has something to do with recently. Okay, cool. So they broke in, and guess what they found? They found the person's uncle dead with a stab wound, and they also found two other victims. So I don't want to say this person's name because he could go fuck himself, but the assailant's granddaughter was also found dead. So he killed his uncle, he killed his granddaughter, and there was a third person there still alive, which was his uncle's wife, so his aunt, I guess, so to speak. So that's not the weird part. That's just the gruesome part. So this is where it gets weird. So when the assailant was in custody, he, his conscience got the best of him, I guess, and he started to confess. So he admitted to killing a third person as well. And that was his neighbor. He went over to his neighbor's house, stabbed him, and after his neighbor was dead, proceeded to cut out his heart. Wow. All right, still with me there? <laughs> yeah, so he did like a fatality. Exactly. So, he went back to his uncle's house and cooked up this heart with a side of potatoes and force-fed it to his uncle and his wife. When they decided to fight off, that's when he killed them. And then when the cops showed up, that's when they found them puking in the corner and 
the one dead along with his granddaughter. And his whole reasoning behind this whole craziness was that apparently he wanted them to eat the human heart so they could release the demons inside because he thought they were all possessed. And what was his initial reason of killing the neighbor? Was it because his people's family was possessed and he was trying to save them? No, because he needed a, a human heart. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he killed yeah, his neighbor uh, for the heart and he wanted to force feed it to his to his family, but in the end, he ended up killing him. So I don't know what the hell was wrong with this person. But here's, here's the kicker. Apparently, this person had a long list of, I guess, crimes from before. He was in and out of jail for, like, drugs, for battery, for doing suspicious stuff. And now, apparently, Oklahoma's looking into the, their judicial system. because it's. And this is where it came to light now because now they're actually looking into it because now, I guess, it came to light and people are doing it. And that's why the story is relevant again. But can you imagine, like, this is what's wrong with society now. Like, you let people like this out on the street... When people who don't deserve to be in jail be in jail, I missed right? that he was let out. Sorry, I think I missed the detail that he was let out. Well, yeah, Sorry. well, that's what I mean. Like from before, prior, uh, I guess convictions. Uh, that's the thing. Like, I don't know, man. I, I gotta say, like, you can't be convicted of future crimes. I think that um, you know. No, but here's the thing: he was convicted of crimes for like twenty to life, but he was always let go off on bail, or he was always let go off and. Okay. The judge always deemed him he was not, I guess, a risk to society when obviously yeah. this man is. Like, I guess, like, I don't, again, I, I don't live in the States, so I can't really say anything because I don't know how it works down there, but that's crazy shit. Can you imagine being one of those judges that let him off when he should have just stayed in jail? No, I can't imagine being any, any part of the legal system because I would feel so much remorse. In either way, you know, if I put someone who was innocent behind bars, I'd feel, I'd feel terrible. And if I put True. someone who was guilty and let them out, I'd feel terrible. And, like, you know, you're, they're just trying to do their jobs. But, like, like I would take that personally and think about it a lot. And yeah. I mean, but anyway, all of that is so much less important than the ridiculousness of what you described. It's horrifying. Right. Well, I, yeah. I told you it was going to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead Blake plug your stuff where people can find you any upcoming projects or any old things you want to plug the floor is all yours my friend uh, so thanks again for having me on um, I'm on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC um, and as I mentioned earlier I have OCD so I'm <laughs> you can almost guarantee I'm going to respond to you <laughs> I don't want something unresponded to uh, even if you have a if you have a question if you have something mean to say no, but anyway uh, I, I'm very uh, accessible, and I feel like I have to be because I've benefited from subject being willing to speak with me uh, as far back as when they probably shouldn't have. Um, and uh, yeah, the Console Wars movie is now available on Paramount Plus. Uh, it was originally on CBS All Access, but now it's on Paramount Plus. Uh, and Joan and I are really happy with it. There's also a book that's been out for many years, and uh, and and I'm working on a new book now about Larry David, who's a beautiful, hilarious man. Awesome. Um, and I'll be out in a couple of years but uh, thanks again for having me on no thank you and for myself you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles you can follow the podcast on Twitter the podcast app email us your thoughts suggestions comments anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast app at gmail.com rewind to the top of the show support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out helps me out but most importantly please rate subscribe review on all major platforms one last question before I let you go you mentioned it in passing there is a mini series adaptation going on and the, one of the people behind it is Seth Rogen. How did all this come to be? Oh, uh, you'll have to have me on again. I mean, I'm not. Uh, it's a whole story. It's life changing for me because I also mentioned in passing that I had a day job trading commodities when all of this started. So 
um, getting to write full-time and make movies was my dream, and, and console wars enabled me to achieve that. Um, so, so we can talk about it next time when I come on, or maybe when, when that show comes out or, or another time. But, but it is worth noting that as, as advertised, Hollywood takes a long time most of the time. Right. Um, and so it has taken us eight years with the documentary and with the, uh, with the limited series and it's very important and I think deserves recognition that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg has stuck with us this whole time. They haven't said, oh, this is like not worth it and, right, and right. also took a chance on me. Nobody, but uh, I just think that they deserve a special shout out for helping us tell the story and being so supportive of it throughout. That's awesome. Okay, perfect. Then I'm going to hold you to your word. Once this drops, I'll have you back on. We could discuss it more in detail and other stuff, obviously. Okay. So on that note, he's Blake. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace.